Coming up on this edition of the Golf Digest podcast, we discuss Webb Simpson's big win at the Players' Championship with his caddy, Paul Tesori, talk a little about uh, Tiger Woods' Wild Week, and uh, discuss legalized gambling and how it affects golf fans. Welcome back to the Golf Digest Podcast. I'm Alex Myers, and today I'm joined by Sam Wyman and Keely Levins. Guys, we had a pretty exciting week. I guess I shouldn't say that. I mean, there wasn't that much drama really on Sunday because Webb Simpson played so well. But still, overall. Yeah, I mean, as far yeah. as a tournament that was pretty much predetermined by the time you got to Saturday morning, it right. was still it was plenty to talk about. Um, and... You know, certainly Tiger Woods had a lot to do with that, but also I think, you know, we, we talked about this later, or the Webb Simpson story is probably underappreciated. So um, I, that that part of it, when you kind of get a, a sense for everything that he went through and the relationship he has with his caddy and all that, it was, you know, you know, kind of hold up over time as being a very important weekend. Yeah. Keely, I mean, Webb Simpson, by the way, Wake Forest guy. Sorry. I don't want to talk about that, Alex. I thought I was very clear we weren't going to bring up Wake. Let's go, Duke. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously from a fan standpoint and from a writing standpoint, it's a bit of a nightmare when you see a guy just running away like that. But I agree. I think there's a, a depth of character um, with Webb that we wouldn't have gotten to if we hadn't seen him win like this. Um, and, I mean – Watching someone go that low is pretty entertaining, regardless of who it is. So, depth yeah. of character is that the first time that phrase has been used on the golf definitely on the podcast. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Um, Steve, they didn't again. teach you that at Wake, or yeah. what? Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, Webb. Back to Webb. Obviously, you mentioned it's an underrated story. He's had an underrated career. I mean, he's now five wins, a U.S. Open, a Players, four. President's Cup slash Ryder Cup appearances. I, I forgot. Right. I mean, that's that's a lot. I mean, he was a regular until basically the past couple of years. Right. Yeah, I mean, his career is going to probably well, it'd be interesting well, to see. He's 32 years old. I know. It's going to probably kind of end up being two, two halves of a career. I mean, mm-hmm. and he had this sort of pretty barren middle, and we'll see how he follows up that. Obviously, um, turned a huge corner. A lot of it has to do with his putting, which Paul Tesori's caddy talks about. But because he had this great start and then the anchoring ban happened and obviously a lot of time sort of trying to find his game and find uh, an answer on the greens and now that he's got it um you know he hits it well enough although he's not the longest no. guy where you would think he could be a, a regular contender yeah i like seeing um this kind of life after the anchoring ban not even just for webb but for other guys like keegan like he played pretty well he's had a few good tournaments since the ban but i think there were just so many unknowns going into the anchoring band like these guys are done like they have no chance what are they going to do and I think that we're far enough removed from it we're like what two and a half years Mm -hmm. out that enough tinkering has gone on that these guys are finding what works and it it's you know it allows for some success which is good yeah there are these anchor band survivors and you know it's funny because Adam Scott actually that first year was great right away he won those couple he almost won three tournaments in a row now he's fallen off a cliff until this past week. Mm-hmm. Keegan did fall off a cliff. He played well this week. He's started to show some signs. And now Webb, beginning last year, um, as as Paul tells us, I mean, his stats, 
you know, he ended up being 88th in strokes game putting last year after a miserable start. The two previous seasons, he was 174th, 177th. After being, you know, he was never like one of the best putters, but he was always a pretty good serviceable putter. So these guys, um, you know, this week was huge for all three of those guys. I mean, mm-hmm. all major champs, all, you know, young guys, relatively speaking, when the anchor band came into play. I mean, imagine if LeBron James was told tomorrow you can't shoot the way you shoot. I mean, it's it's a pretty yeah. extreme thing yeah. that happened to these guys. It would be also really kind of unsatisfying, especially when you're talking about guys who won majors, if they sort of fell off a cliff and yeah, never heard and from never, again because yeah. it's suddenly like okay what do you make what do you make of that period in golf when guys were winning with you know with this type of stroke right. now that you say okay actually they can all play i would almost put adam scott in a different category yeah. because first of all he started yes. putting you know quote unquote normally then went to long putter he was never a great putter and it was sort of a uh, a holdover for mm-hmm. a, a little while but the other two that you know they rose to prominence for the most part, With using them. an anchoring yes. stroke. And so to see that they can still play, you know, good, relevant golf after the ban is is good because it sort of validates everything they did before that. Yeah, and, I mean, Adam Scott w- did go back to the long putter this week. Of course, he's not anchoring. Right. Uh, but maybe that's going to be a key for him going forward. Obviously, a lot's been made of Webb's stroke. It's kind of this claw grip that he got from Tim Clark, but he also has the – it anchored up against yeah. his arm, which for some reason that's allowed, but other anchoring's not. And One point of contact. One point of contact. There you go, Keely. You yeah. explain it to us. You, no, you, I mean, no, that's all. He's not the only guy that's been putting like no, that. No, no, of it's course. Like, it's t- I just wonder why when they crafted this rule, it seemed like a bit of a, obviously Matt Kuchar has done this throughout. Right. And they could have easily crafted the rule to cut out the way he putted, but they, they didn't. And now other people seem to kind of yeah. be thinking, hey, that works for Matt Kuchar. Let me let me try it. I know. I'm trying to figure out if we should be buying into this putting grip as hard as like every like he wins with it and everyone's like, Oh, should everyone be trying this? But like I I kind of liken it to some of like the Bryson DeChambeau, you know, one length. It's like just because it's working for one person or a handful of people, mm-hmm. you know, like there's a reason why people putt conventionally. It works. Yeah. No, I, overall I, I just think these guys are all so good. That I mean, because we joked last week when Justin Thomas was using Ricky Fowler's backup putter. Yeah. I, I don't think it matters what putter they use or what stroke they use, method. I mean, we saw BJ Singh bounce around. Paul Story mentions Bernard Longer bouncing around, winning majors with multiple right. methods. These guys are so good. They naturally have such great touch, and they practice so much. Like you know, you we don't go out and practice right. putting. God I mean, no. these guys these guys go out there and grind that they they'll figure out a way. To putt, and right. uh, I think that's just the case here. Thank you for making clear that if we practice as much <laughs> as PGA Tour players, we'd be as we good putters. We, 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 we would be a great putter. Yeah. Oh, right. phenomenal. That's, that's exactly the total uh, back right now. But, yeah, yeah. Webb uh, led the field in strokes gained putting by a good margin. He gained over nine strokes on the field in putting, and he's now up to fifth uh, on the season in strokes gained putting. So he's not only putting well for him. He's, like, all of a sudden one of the best putters on tour. So got to be encouraging for – an Adam Scott or a Keegan and, and all that. For sure. I don't know if Adam Scott is quite there in terms of confidence. I think, you know, like Tesori talks about that, like how much of it is just belief and seeing putts go in, you know, mm-hmm. for now he's seen it for a sustained period of time, which is a big part of it. Because it's suddenly, you know, you work your way back from the green. Like when you start making putts, you start feeling a lot more comfortable, you know, hitting shots into greens, hitting off the tee. So um, there's sort of a trickle-down effect, which obviously he – is enjoying now. We'll see whether he can sustain I, that's, it or not. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I'm curious to see if he's able to sustain this because there were many moments that looked like 
out of body experiences. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I don't know if this is like, this is the player that Webb is now, or if this is even the putter that Webb is now. I think we have to pump it, the brakes. It's also, you know, a course that it's not about distance, as Sam said. Right. Um, it's about putting yourself in play, it's about positioning. And as Tiger and other guys said, with the humidity and everything else, um, that might change next year when the tournament's in March, but the ball was going forever there. Mm-hmm. I mean, these guys are hitting nine irons, 190 yards. I mean, Webb Simpson was hitting 330-yard drives, so the ball was <laughs> the ball was flying. Um, so it definitely it brought him back closer to, to those bombers this week. Speaking of which, we, we will move on to Tiger Woods. Uh, did he play this week? He did he play. Right. He was really the only source of excitement on Sunday other than Webb and Again, though, with that tournament, you just never know till a guy finishes 17. Even 18, Webb did go in the water. But Tiger, Tiger made a run. He made a Sunday charge. Uh, Paul Story acknowledged they could hear the the specific roars for Tiger. He knew that Tiger was lurking. At one point, he got to within four shots. Which, again, we're, we are we making too big a deal that he, this guy finished T11, or did he? You know. Because it's Tiger Woods, should we be making a deal about it? Well, I would say both for yeah. starters. I mean, because the, the, it was it was legit. You know, yes. what's interesting is that he's had a couple of these sort of backing his way into contention. But actually, after his round on Saturday, his round on Saturday was amazing. But actually, to back it up on Sunday and follow up, that was probably the most impressive thing he's done so far since his return. Because it was mm-hmm. his first sort of back-to-back great rounds, mm-hmm. getting himself in the mix. Of course, you know, fades yeah. late as he's yeah. done the shot on 17 was was um pretty disappointing i mean he wasn't going to win at that point no but you just kind of wanted to see him sustain that momentum but it was exciting and i think at some point i forget who it was that said it, like we were watching the it was watching the best player in the world in terms of brandel chambly yeah said it. the yeah. ability to execute shots mm-hmm. um is all there and mm-hmm. so again it's such a cliche it's a matter of putting it all together but he put it all together uh, more this week than he has, pretty, you know, save yeah. for the Valspar Championship. It's Our, definitely trending in yeah. the right direction. I think it's just like you have to play your way into shape. Like he has gone so long without consistently putting four rounds of tournament golf together. The more fre- frequently that he does this, the better he's going to get at it. And I think that's what we're seeing. But are we worried about him finishing off these rounds? Because both Saturday and Sunday, it was a disappointing finish. Mm-hmm. The Honda was a disappointing finish. Yeah. Bay Hill hit the ball out of bounds on 16. Valspar, he should have won that tournament, let's be honest. He was he had tied for the lead after the first hole and then did nothing the whole day. Yeah. Played really conservatively. Should we be worried about him under pressure, which is crazy to talk about, but... No, of course. I think, to Keeley's point, it's like he's got to get... There's, like, several humps he's got to cross. Like, he's yeah. got to get in contention in some form or another. He's got to have a late tee time for a couple days in a row. And then he's got to have a late tee time and be able to actually execute, you know, 16, 17, 18 with the lead or leading or, uh, or you know, down a stroke, which he hasn't been able to do. So I wouldn't be surprised if he has a few more of these sort of hiccups before he gets over the hump. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is that he's sort of moving in the direction where he's proven that he can get there. Yeah. I, I think that his – that Valspar performance particularly where he almost won in what is – fourth star right. right that all of a sudden we were like oh man now he's gonna win right. and so now we kind of expect it he, he so he he hurt himself by doing so well so quickly and i think if he had won that tournament who knows maybe we don't see him stumble down the stretch and maybe some of these i think you're right i think there's certain hurdles even a tiger woods has to get over but um you know clearly again 
just seeing him back there playing oh well. Oh, my God. I Vintage mean, Tiger. Pr- like, yeah, pretty exciting. Going out in 30 on Saturday, like, I— That was nuts. That right. was insane. I didn't think we would see that for— Eh, ever again. And I mean, the tee shots were <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, not only, not just the driver, but the stingers, which you can kind of just. I mean, oh, it's, the stingers. It's oh, stingers getting, all day. You get a little flush. Ooh, right now. Love it. Was, it. Yes. Oh god, I keep watching it. You know, uh, a coworker who will remain unnamed pondered if Tiger would be on the Ryder Cup, and I laughed in his face uh, because he's going to play in the Ryder Cup. I mean, a hundred. A hundred and ten percent. There's no question. I mean, yeah. if he if he yeah, if, if he's healthy, I'm saying if he's, yeah. if he's healthy and he and he maintains the same sort of trajectory he's on, he doesn't yeah. need a win. No, he doesn't even no, need, he doesn't even to qualify on points. Nope. Um, he, he's a no-brainer. I mean, like when when Pavin when Corey Pavin picked Tiger in 2010, I don't think he was close to the record uh, that he that he has now in terms of how well he was playing. Right. And so exactly. so in in that regard. I, I agree it's a no-brainer. Yeah, if you look at – ta- I know we've said this before, and people are like, oh, you're cherry-picking stats. Uh, if you take out the minimum divisor, because Tiger has barely played the last two years, he'd be number 10 in the world right now. Mm-hmm. So, And that's without win- – you know, when you win an event, an event you right. get a huge, huge boost. Bump. Yeah. He doesn't have that. He, You know, even yesterday – or, I'm sorry, Sunday, it was a T11. It's not like he even fi- – you know, if he'd finished uh, second, he would have moved up into the top 50 in the world right. ranking. He was 1199th in December, <laughs> and that's nuts. So he's clearly one of the best players, clearly one of the 12 best U.S. players, and uh, yeah, we can start getting him fitted for some wardrobe. Can't uh, wait in the Ryder Cup. Um, so anyway, let's we got to get back to Webb because we had a, Sam and I had a great conversation with his caddy Paul Tesori, who certainly a name who's been around, caddy for Vijay Singh, caddy for Sean O'Hare. Um, has won, as he told us, 20 times Amazing. on the PJ Tour, which you don't hear that about the caddies a lot. You kind of have to you have to hear it from them to know how much they win. People mm-hmm. don't really keep records of that. Sam, what were your takeaways from our, our talk with him? Well, first of all, I think, you know, we find this again and again that caddies are the best, have the best insight into mm-hmm. the game because obviously they're thinking about it on a level that, that even the player isn't. So uh, just generally, generally uh, very insightful into – you know, tournament golf, but also kind of everything that Webb had gone through and the struggles they had and kind of the their relationship is really unique because they're very close and it got a little, you know, dicey in terms of golf. Like, they, I don't think there was ever a question that he was going to remain his caddy, but like, you know, there's this sort of period of frustration, especially after winning the US Open where you can't play, where it sounds like they kind of had a couple of, of tough moments. Mm-hmm. Um, so just hearing about that and kind of the journey that they were on together was great and he's just a you know great player in his own right played on the pga tour you know 21 events so he yeah. just knows the game really well and is able to sort of think it on a level that that, that you know even you can't think at so no <laughs> yeah. i don't know about come that, on but, uh, no i agree i it was great listening to him talk about it you know all the stuff that goes into even a final round when you're up by seven shots all the preparation and everything else so of course we want you to listen to that but yeah the 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 all uh confrontations he got into with Webb he mentions a couple times as well and you know that's got to be a lot of the frustration boiling over from the anchor band and everything else I mean this was a guy who was a star on the rise kind of gets cut down a little by that rule and um, you know certainly has figured figured it out since so um, and, and and Paul tells a great story about how he actually cost Webb millions of dollars so amazing speak. and they're still <laughs> friends so look at that so anyway guys uh please uh have a listen now to our talk with paul tesori
right. Thanks, uh, Paul Tesori. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's Golf Digest podcast. How are you? Glad to be here. Uh, obviously, anytime I am uh, talking with you guys, that means good things have happened. And uh, <laughs> obviously, it did this past weekend. So uh, glad to be on. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, um, it sure looked like you were headed in this direction on probably as early as Friday uh, and certainly on Saturday. But that leads to probably a very difficult round on Sunday. I'm just curious, as a caddy, um, a seven-stroke lead, you're basically defined by that point of, by not screwing up. So how difficult a Sunday was it for both of you? Yes. Um, I have never had that kind of a lead since I started, and none of them have been anywhere close to that difficult as far as the internal battle, kind of uh, trying to focus on all the right things while you're out there, trying to figure out, you know, you still have to go out and play golf. Um, I was out walking the course in the morning and was there and watched uh, Kepka go 2-2 hmm. on 16 and 17. And, you know, you start remembering Ricky a few years ago playing the last four holes, five under, to get into that playoff and eventually winning. And as you tee off that seven-shot lead, you hear the stuff about, you know, no one has ever lost a seven-shot lead. You know, me and Webb, it's been four and a half years since we have won, and this is this is my major. Um, I would choose this as my second favorite tournament in the world to win, hmm. uh, next to the Masters. And for me, there was kind of a little bit of that added uh, pressure of being in front of friends and family and so many people out supporting us. So I definitely felt the weight of it. Uh, I didn't sleep that well the night before, which you would think, again, seven-shot lead, boy, you should have slept great, but just a lot more thought. So I went out a little earlier than normal to try to just feel like I was overly prepared. And um, it was tough. It was the, the bag nine felt like it took five hours to, uh, to complete. Yeah. I wonder, uh, Paul, you mentioned getting out there early and uh, preparing. Did, did you guys have a, any sort of strategy session before you teed off? And is, or is that something you don't do ever? Yeah. Uh, great question. We started almost a year ago. Um, doing a strategy strategy session for about 10 minutes before every round. Um, we were noticing we were getting in. They're not arguments. We were just having disagreements on the golf course about certain plays with certain pins. If teams were up or pins had been changed, you know, what we were going to do on certain holes. So we felt like three or four times around we would be out there. We'd be having these discussions on the golf course. And um, we finally sat down after we just couldn't come to an agreement on a hole um, last year. I don't really remember where. And, oh, it was, funny enough, it was actually here. I remember it was during the second round at TPC, and we were um, completely on separate wavelengths about what to do on two off the tee, and uh, it was uh, six off the tee. And we decided the next day, hey, let's just talk about it before the round so we can get rid of it. And so we did that. We just kind of went through everything. And the one thing I wanted to make sure I did, I went out and walked the number on 17. So I was sure that we had the exact number. Um, obviously, during that special round on Friday, we were caught with just a horrific number. And we hadn't warmed up and hit any shots that we might need to do if we needed to hit a little soft cut pitching wedge or, or smash the gap wedge. Um, so I went out and walked the number, and the number was perfect on 17 for us. Uh, even though when we got there, of course, uh, the wind switched on 16 um, permanently for, for the last three holes and ended up coming back into it. So it still created a little turmoil, but he was able to hit a club firm enough and hard enough, uh, which is kind of good in that situation to be able to do. You know, speaking of Friday, which was which was amazing, and it seemed like Webb couldn't miss, uh, how conscious are both of you uh, about what's happening 
um, how low he's going, what's at stake in terms of course records and whatnot, and and given that, how difficult is those that closing stretch? Yeah, well, I've got two different answers for you. Let's start with Weber. Um, Weber grew up on a course uh, that the goal every time he played basically was to break sixty. Um, he only ended up, he ended up doing it, I think four times, wow. but. You know, they would go out, he would get seven or eight under and feel nothing. Um, not until it got to 11 under did he start getting, you know, a little bit anxious. And, um, so for him, when he started running, he thinks it's fun. He just wants to get more and more and more. Um, I guess I, I don't know if it's the old Florida education that I have. I uh, played golf for Florida for a few years, or it was just I was so wrapped up in just the shot by shot. I had no idea that we were 10 under walking down the 16th hole. Um, I heard a fan yell out, walking down 16 saying, come on, Weber, shoot 59. And my exact thought to myself was, have another, buddy. That was my <laughs> exact thought. Um, as we're walking down the fairway, I'm starting to go through the round. I'm like, okay, we shot four under the front. Okay, we're five under back here. We're only nine under. We're not going to play the last three holes four under. That's just not really you know, feasible to do. And I was like, no, we're not nine under. No, we're eight under. Yeah, we buried the last five. We shot four on the front. So, or, or whatever, last four. I thought we were eight under. Long story short. Hmm. And then I picked up my scorecard. I keep the score, and I looked at the score. And I started counting up. I'm like, wait, we shot five on the front, <laughs> and we've made five. That we are ten under right now. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. All of a sudden, I did start getting excited. He had already piped it down the middle on 15. I'm like, this is ridiculous. I didn't really know what was going on at the time. And then he made 30 on 16. I remember walking to 17, and I already knew the number on 17. And I, it's just a terrible number. I knew the 10 was 147. We were getting help out of the right. For Weber, that's going to be a chippy wedge, which generally comes off with no spin. And we've gone long to that flag two of our years here together, hitting that kind of soft wedge. Or it's going to be a smash sandwich, or it's a gap wedge for us. And, you know, already I'm thinking that on the walk over. Now, he doesn't know any of that stuff. He doesn't know the numbers yet, but I do. And I'm just like, we just need help. And the flag was saying we had help. And unfortunately, we had two wind switches as we were about to hit. Uh, just Gus that came back into us and... By the time we hit, he was committed, and he had the club. It probably wasn't going to finish on top, but at least a club that was going to get us over all the trouble. And, you know, it wasn't even a, a terrible shot. He just got a little bit of a head ahead of it trying to smash that gap wedge. And ball cut and trickled over the back. And, you know, as great as the week was and as amazing as that round was, I still wish we could get that one back. <laughs> to be 11 under par through 16 holes. I mean, I don't know, 61 uh, uh, on that golf course, uh, it might have gone down as one of the best rounds ever played in tour history. Um, and uh, there's that little piece that we'll always look back on, but to have the crystal and the cash, we're still doing all right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I wonder, on that last day, how often did you look at the scoreboard and how often did, did Webb look at the scoreboard? And, you know, with, with having a big lead, what is your philosophy about kind of keeping track of everybody else? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I like looking at the scoreboard. Um, from my end, it's not going to really affect what I'm doing mm -hmm. that much. I looked a little bit less um, the last day uh, until when we made bogey on 10 and we were walking down 11, there's a scoreboard, and obviously we were hearing the roars. Mm -hmm. You know which ones are Tigers and which one is. It, 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 it's still a difference. Nothing's changed in that standpoint. <laughs> and so we knew he was doing something special, but I wanted to look – we went down 11. I wanted to make sure nobody had gotten to, like, 16 or not. And I saw, I think he was 14 when I looked. Um, Day was 14 when I looked. 
And they were on, I think they were on 14. And there was a pretty good realization right then that they both are going to hit wedge in the 14. They are both going to hit wedge in the 15. They're both going to hit mid mid irons in the 16. And when you're chasing that pin on uh, 17, is kind of it's a gettable pin, you know, when you're the chaser. Mm-hmm. And so I was just very very aware right now. Man, we have, we we need to get it to 20. That was kind of my thought then. It did change from this kind of I don't know about hold on theory, but we made you know we had a 360 lift out on eight, kind of a sloppy par on nine, and then a bogey with a nine iron and a hand on ten. And, by the time we got to 11, it was almost refreshing to me. I'm like, okay, we are back in the full grind mode here. And he hadn't looked. He had heard the roars, but we kind of put him on probation for looking until he needs to look. Uh, just because it's never really a good thing. You know, if you're seven under, uh, if you have a seven-shot lead, and you're even a winner for the day, and you're in cruise control doing your work, go do your work. If somebody's eight under, you can't control that. Like, there's nothing you can do. Um, and then if you look up and nobody's doing anything, you get a seven-shot lead that also could make you relax. So we try to leave him out. Um, on 16, the first time he looked, and uh, he made sure on a walk from 16 to 17, he goes, hey, uh, it looks like I'm six up. Is that right? And I said, yes. And so you know, he just kind of needed to know there, you know, are we only one up? He wanted to make sure nobody had done something too crazy. So um, I had looked, and, and boys, it was a long, long go. Um, <laughs> it was just a – it was like nothing I've ever experienced. It just seemed the front nine. We played fast. We played uh, for the last group. We played in an hour and forty six minutes, wow. um, which is incredibly fast. But the back nine took almost two and a half hours. Um, I guess just because of I think from what I saw from the coverage and watching it yesterday, there was a lot of train wrecks going on. Just that back nine. Obviously, you can get it, but at the same time, it can get you. And it looks like that was happening. You know, I was going to say you mentioned the pace, Webb. Um, you know, looked like he was really not taking a lot of time, especially over those par putts that he had on the front nine. What you know, was there anything conscious to that? Did he did he speed up? Was he or or was that that typical for him to play that that quickly? Yeah, so you know that's been part of kind of Webb's resurgence. Um, Webb, right? Uh, this happened. This happened right after he kind of made the change with Tim Clark to go to the Qual last year. Players. Um, just before that, actually, let's see, we made that change. It was on the Florida swing. So just a, a couple of about a month before the players last year, he just decided that his he would get more anxious the longer he stood over the putt. Hmm. And as he went in to take his practice strokes, he kind of felt the you know the anxiety or whatever you want to call it, the uncomfortableness building as he stood over the ball. So. Um, he had talked to the Stocktons earlier that year. Um, he just worked with them for a day. And he didn't really want to go the whole route, but he really liked what they had to say about practice strokes, um, to do them behind the ball, step in and go. And it felt like it was clearing his mind up. So he's been doing that for about a year and a half now where we'll take our time, you know, we'll read the putt. But as soon as he has looked behind the ball and goes in, it's let's let's get it going, trust your line, and let it go. Um, so that was the same routine he had. He didn't change speed or anything else, but uh, it has really been helpful for him to just kind of go quicker, get those thoughts out of the mind, and let it go. Yeah, you, you, you guys obviously don't realize this, but right um, on 11, when Webb had his birdie putt after that great lag, they did a split screen, and Tiger had his par putt on 14 after a disappointing approach, and it sort of seemed like, that was the moment right there. They did this split screen, and Tiger was grinding. He missed. Webb just jumped in there, banged in that birdie putt. I mean, I know you, you said you were looking a little at the score. 
Um, did you think that that putt on 11, uh, how critical was that, you know, converting that birdie? Yeah. Yeah, so for us, the 11th hole was the biggest hole. You can't say the golf tournament because there's so many big moments, but definitely the last round, the 11th hole was the biggest hole. You know, we made a great birdie on seven to get it to one under and then had that, you know, horseshoe lip out on eight, a sloppy par on uh, on nine where he had to make about a five-footer, and then nine-iron middle fair on ten make bogey. And when he made bogey, there was the first time that we had a little talk between 11 and 12, and I just want to make sure that his focus was right. And he realized that, both on uh, 9 and 10, where he knows you can't miss a second shot right on 9, and he knows you can't miss a second shot left on 10. Mm. He realized both times he thought he had a little too much club on 9, and he got too wrapped up in the numbers and forgot more about line. And on 10, we were really trying to bust a 9-iron, and again, got too wrapped up into how hard he was trying to hit it and not, hey, I'm coming down 15 feet by this pin, let the last look be there. So going down 11, um, we got fortunate. We hit a little bit of a pull on 11, and it's that perfect pull that you hope comes out, but you can't dial it in. It's kind of that pounded pull down the left-hand side that catches the speed slot. And we hit it 30 yards further than we hit it all week. And to have a four-iron into that hole is just a completely different deal. Off a little bit of an upslope, too. So um, he striked the four-iron right. We were trying to hit it on the front part of the green, you know, left of the hole, and then a great two-putt. And I didn't know what had happened to Tiger. I knew things were starting to calm down. The, the roars were starting to slow down. But watching it last night, I mean, that wedge shot Tiger hit in the 14, and, and that's just TPC for you. He was in a chase position. And I think there, if you continue to chase and attack, you are probably going to get bitten once or twice. And the shots that he hit on 14 and 17 to me – looked like shots that were right at the hole. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a golf course that'll do that to you. And that's why seven-shot lead around that place never felt comfortable. You got guys that can go deep down the stretch and do something like Kepka did or what Rich did a, a couple of years ago. You know, Or you can also do uh, what Tiger did coming down the stretch. He made a bogey on 14 and a double on 17, hitting quality golf shots. Even our double on 18, even though we didn't hit on the line we wanted, the six iron was right at the hole, um, and the greens were getting so firm. It ended up taking that weird bounce and, and went down the water. So um, you're never comfortable. I was not comfortable until we chipped it on the green in four on 18, and then I was like, okay, I'm good now. I can go relax. But uh, <laughs> uh, I stayed in a heightened sense of uh, just a, a little bit not being in peace until that chip found the green on 18. Right. Let's back up for a second. You had referenced that this was kind of at the end of a, a pretty long uh, period for for both of you, or Webb was you know at one point struggling and kind of trying to find his game specifically on the greens. And I'm curious, you guys are very close. I, I you know I venture to guess where you where you fall in terms of like close caddy player relationships. How much of a a strain can that place though on a relationship when you know you guys are committed to each other, but the player is struggling? Mm, yeah, what what a great question. I, I think every player and caddy might have a different answer. I, I do believe Weber and I's answer will be pretty similar. Uh, as far as our relationship, the, the, the two and a half years of struggle strengthened us um, as a relationship. Uh, there were some really, really hard times there. Um, we had two occurrences on the golf course where uh, we had some moments that we're not proud of. Um, I've told everybody Webb's the the greatest man I've ever met. Even though he's 14 years younger than I, I younger than I am, I look up to him. He just uh, what him and Dow, well, who they are as people and as parents and as, as husband and wife, they're great. So let's blame both of these instances on me. Uh, the one was in Akron in 2015, and the big blow up was 2016 at Beth Page Black. Um, we were in the playoffs. Um, we had had eight three putts through 32 holes, and 
Um, we're on our 33rd hole there. We're still on the cut line. That just tells you how good he was still hitting it, even for eight three putts. And we just got into a bad argument about the play we had off the tee. And I kind of snapped a little bit. And, you know, I, I was holding some stuff in. And we talked after the round. We thought we'd missed the cut by one. Um, we ended up having nine three putts through 36 holes and made the cut. So that'll, that'll tell you how well Jeez. he was playing at the time. Um, we talked for almost an hour in the courtesy car afterwards, and I'm not I'm not afraid to say there were some tears that were shed and everything else. But you know, Weber just truly dove in and let me know his feelings. And you know, I had been bottling some things up, so I let him know mine too. And the biggest problem I had with Webb at the time was that he was too close-minded. Um, we had been struggling at the time for over a year and a half, almost two years. We switched, um, you know, the putting band. We went in a year early which was my call, and that cost us at least about $5 million. Because mm. the next year, I think he finished third in ball striking on tour wow. and only made about a uh, million and a half dollars. And we went through and looked at his average putting throughout his career. And if he would have had an average putting year, he would have been second on the Ryder Cup list. He would have won at least a couple of tournaments and made about $6 million bucks. So I was like, well, Webb, you're welcome, buddy. Anything, anything else you need from me, <laughs> just, just let me know. I just thought we should switch early. We knew it was a little point of anxiety for Webb, you know, the whole switching thing. It was for everybody. And he wanted to switch so when the band came, he was already a year into it, and maybe he wouldn't have to answer as many questions. Um, but it was a long stretch, and, and once we sat down and talked about it, it started to open his mind a little bit more. And fast forward to last year, 2017, uh, um, TPC, we're coming off a miscut at his favorite course on the planet, Eagle Point, at the Wells Fargo. Uh, we were minus eight strokes game putting that week. Uh, he missed the cut by two and came into TPC really with no confidence. Um, he was really down. And Wednesday afternoon, we're on the putting green still searching. And Tim Clark and Webb had the same agent. And Tim asked me, hey, Paul, do you mind if I go say something to Webb? I was like, buddy, go say whatever you want. It was a five-minute conversation. Um, and Tim just said, have you ever tried the claw? And Weber said no, and Tim showed him how he held it, and he walked away five minutes later. And Webb tried it, his stroke immediately got better, more straight back and through down the line, which he's always struggled to do, and we showed up 30 minutes earlier the next day for afternoon tea time, and he still didn't know what he was going to do, and he put it into play without ever using it on the golf course. And (laughs) That in and of itself is a big sign to me that he was opening up to other possibilities, which I thought is all he needed to do. Bernhard Langer told him, Weber, you have to keep searching for a different thing, and you're going to find your own. Don't give up. Um, Bernhard had gone through it four different times. He went through the Yips four different times on tour and won the Masters after two of those occurrences. And each time, Langer told him he didn't know if he'd ever get it back. Hmm. Um, and so that was a huge point of encouragement for Weber to hear that from arguably, you know, the longest, greatest player we've had in the last 50 or 60 years. Um, what he's done is just ridiculous. And sure enough, that turned everything around. We were 192nd on tour last year going into the players, finished the season, which was already well over half over 88. And now this year we're fifth on tour in putting. And it's nothing short of miraculous as far as we're concerned. How much of that do you think is actually fundamentally having a better putting stroke and how much of it is belief? Uh, I think that would be the golden question. I'm going to tell you half and half. Um, I believe if you have a putting stroke that is hand and rotational oriented, which means you've got a lot of face rotation, I think anxiety can have a bigger play in your results. Um, when you put the claw on there, it just slowed down the rotation of the face. And we believe in a fairly straight back, straight through stroke with as little face rotation as possible. Um, and through that, he was able to start making some of those short putts. And when you start making them, the confidence kind of came after. 
Um, you know, he still sure he told me, you know, Paul still get anxious, you know, still get a little nervous, but he has a stroke right now that is holding up and has held up for over a year. And it's the crazy thing is he's now a better putter than he ever was before. He was always a top fifty putter, but he's never been this high and it's been consistent week in and week out and he's truly believing in everything now. He's back to driving the ball the way he knew how to drive the golf ball. We made a grip change just a couple weeks before and, and that helped and me being his coach, uh, sometimes uh, he gets tired of hearing from me. So anytime I get to be quiet and not have to tell him much, uh, the, the better off we are. And it's been a really good run here. Um, I told people I'm not a big – I, I kind of believe in the jinx. So I usually don't throw things out. But I told my wife when we were driving up to Wells Fargo that I was hoping for a top 20 um, at Wells. We finished 21st, and I thought we were going to win the win the players. And <laughs> wow. I don't say that stuff. I really did. I told – all my friends, we have a big clinic for our foundation on Wednesday, and everybody said, how's Weber looking? I said, boys, I don't know if we're going to win, but I guarantee you we're going to have a chance to win this golf tournament on the back nine on Sunday. And I feel like he's going to win the golf tournament. And then, obviously, I had no idea what was going to happen, but I knew how well he was playing. When they built TPC Sawgrass, they built it for a player like Weber, who loves to work the golf ball. He's not, he's not long. But he can work the golf ball left and right, right and left, and he has a great short game. And it obviously it ended up working out. That's amazing. Um, you know, they kept showing though his track record there, and obviously, you know, even Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson have these crazy track records at TPC Sawgrass. It's just such a unusual test of golf where you can win and then you know miss cuts the next few years. What right, uh, right. you know how? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that you had that much confidence that week, considering. Um, that he had never had a top 10 there. So are you more yes. surprised that that had been the case or that he did end up doing what he did? Yeah, um, two answers there. I'm surprised pre-band we played in the TPC three times before the band, and we had one 16th place finish, even though he had doubled the last hole that year. If he parred the last hole, he would have finished fifth. Mm. Uh, he had a seven iron in his hand from the middle of the fairway and uh, tugged it left. The same thing happened yesterday. He landed it right by the hole and went in the water. Mm and uh, didn't get up and down. Um, so that would have been a fifth that year. Um, but post-ban, you know, he was just putting so poorly that you just didn't have a chance to succeed on really difficult golf courses. Uh, the harder the golf course is, the more you have to make those putts inside of eight feet, inside of five feet. You're going to have them all day long. Um, and same reason why his track record at Augusta is so poor. Um, this year he putted decent. We finished 20th. It was our best finish there. And, um, you know, those longer golf courses, again, and that's putt well. So, again, we knew the course was built for him. It's one of his favorite courses on tour. Because of my upbringing and being a local guy, it's my favorite course on tour. And I knew the course was built for him. And the fact that he hadn't really contended yet didn't really bother me either way. Um, it just, uh, they say uh, horses for courses, and they couldn't have built a better one for us. <laughs> Do you think that he felt any added pressure knowing how much it meant to you, given your history there? I actually do, yeah. You know, he, he had said something to me a couple times, like, Paulie, I, I know that you're probably used to this as the players now. I'm, you know, you've had chances to win here. I've been the last group a few times, and the better than most year, 2001, where Tiger beat us by one. I was looking for Beach and beat us by one. I was in the last group with Jerry Kelly a couple times, and I had chances. He's like, but, Paulie, I, I really, I'm leaving the golf tournament. I feel more people are rooting for you. <laughs> said, Buddy, don't say that. That's just embarrassing. So don't, don't, don't say that, please. And I said, but remember, they're, they're all praying for us. They're rooting for you harder than rooting for me because they know we're a team. They know you're the one hitting the shot. So try to look at it that way. He goes, I know it's never really hurt anything like it. I was like, well, buddy, I've had the Tesori name here for about 50 years now since my grandfather was a starter for 30 years at the 
Ponte Vedra Training Club down the road and I learned how to play golf here. Went to my first PGA Tour event here and uh, across the street at Sawgrass. So it, once I kind of told him all those things, I think he started realizing hmm, this is pre- this is pretty special. And um, the last time I made the putt, he goes, "Paulie, that's for both of us." Hmm. Um, it's just it was, it was a special moment. It really was. And I told him I wish you'd have made it a little less stressful than on the team, buddy, and he laughed. So. Um, it was just a good moment, and I, it might have added a little bit more pressure, but at the same time, I think it added a little bit more joy uh, to the experience. You mentioned Webb kind of mentioning the, the crowd sport and everything. I wonder, you know, that final pairing on Sunday, playing with Danny Lee, you have obviously Tiger a few groups in front, Jason Day a few groups in front. Does that help or hurt, or does it not matter, um, you know, maybe not having the biggest galleries in that final group uh, that, that you could yeah. have had? You know, I, I, again, just another really great. That's been such an insightful question because I, I do believe in that stuff. Um, Thursday and Friday, I, I care a little bit less about it. Um, he's had a lot of success playing um, with Tiger and Phil, but as the days progress, the fans and the way they root and cheer for a player change, um, especially as you start getting into Sunday. Um, Sunday, uh, the fans start not only rooting hard for their guy, they start rooting really against the others. Um, and, you know, this week I was so protective of Weber and just everything else just because this is a golf course that can start getting in your head. And 99% of the fans are great, but there's the couple. Um, I had I had words with a couple of them. Um, I threatened a couple of them and said, boys, I want you to stay, but if you say another word, you're out. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and both, uh, both times where it was really serious, they both, quieted down and, and kind of walked away, which was good. But, you know, the, the Tiger fans were starting to drop back to let Webb hear a few things. And so I just had security, like, hey, guys, just walk outside the ropes. I don't want anybody kicked out. Just when you hear those comments, the negative comments, we don't need to help inside the ropes. Just, hey, just remind them. Boys, there's no room for that here. And they do it, you know, just, just escort them to a different group. Um, Tiger was going, uh, obviously. And we were starting to hear the words. So, I'm glad we weren't playing with him. Um, back in 2009, I was looking for O'Hare, and we had a five-shot lead at Bay Hill. And this was kind of after, obviously, the the accident, the affair, and everything else. And the fans wanted Tiger to win that tournament so bad. And the things they were saying to Sean O'Hare, who is a great man, a good kid that had a hard upbringing, the things they were saying to him were so out of line and so disrespectful. And that's the thing. No, I don't think anybody disliked Sean, but they loved Tiger so much that they would say whatever they could to just take Sean down. And the fact that we got paired on the weekend with Shaw Swartzel, who is one of Webb's good friends, they both had the same agent, and Danny Lee, who he's really a, he's kind of a goofball in his own way, but a serious competitor, I think that that was a huge blessing to be out with those boys versus being out with Tiger when he was in the mix or – um, I'm not going to say Jay Day. He, it, it, fans are a little bit better when it comes to him, but mm-hmm. somebody like Jay Day, somebody like uh, you know Tiger or Phil. Um, I do think they would, you know Ricky, kind of same thing. Everybody desperately wants to see him win. I think that was a blessing for us. For sure. do, do you think the the fan behavior has gotten noticeably worse in recent years? Uh, incredibly worse. Hmm. I won't say recent years. I'll say probably over the last decade. Um, Tiger's what been out. What is he? Is he on about twenty years now? How old is yeah. he? He's forty-two. So maybe in it. so, you know, it, it started to change probably about six years into his uh, into his run. It started. I think he started in ninety-seven. His massive run started in you know two thousand when he won the three majors in two thousand one, and 
I think the fans really started changing somewhere in that mid-2000 range. And it has. And I'm old school. And I know some of the fans listening to me right now are like, oh, come on now. But <laughs> I believe uh, there should be different ways acting in different sports. Um, you know, tennis at Wimbledon, I like it. Yeah, I like that they can yell in between, but when it comes close to time to serve, um, fans, you know, they quiet down. I love the way it is at the Masters. Fans don't yell. They don't do it. And the problem is, if they yell once there, the green jacket's going to come up and you're gone. <laughs> and that, that's all there is to it. There is no complaint. And I also like once or twice a year having Phoenix. I think that's okay a couple of times a year. But I believe TPC and I believe a lot of higher tournaments should be a little bit different, to be honest with you. Um, I believe there should be a little bit higher standard. Um, it's an old-school game. Uh, I, I, you know, we call penalties on ourselves, and I don't think we should have one that is like the NBA. I don't think we should have places that are that's like the NFL. I do think there should be some differences, and I have no idea how to control that or quiet it down. I have my ideas. Um, but uh, I don't really know how to go much further. I just think a lot of times just warnings, just say, hey, guys, man, you can't do that out here. Uh, you can root for your guy as loud as you want, but you, you, you can't talk down and try to belittle other players at the same time. Uh, Paul, you know, NBC, it seems, does a, a really good job of getting caddies and players uh, talking, interacting on, on uh, the mic. You know, are you aware of that when that's going on and, and – uh, you know, to, what did you think when you watched the, the final round again and you kind of hear your, your guys' interactions? You know, I, I believe NBC has done an amazing job, and, and Golf Channel's doing a better job now, too. Just kind of bringing a light a little bit in my profession. Uh -huh. um, you know, I tell everybody, I said, we're only as important as the percentage we get paid. You know, we get 10% of the win, 7% of everything else. I believe that's about our importance. Um, you know, we can break or make certain decisions, but it's the player's responsibility most of the time. Growing up, uh, when I first started caddying, I thought we were a little more important than that. We're not. Um, there was plenty of times I've had players, I've had 20 wins now, and there's been plenty of times I did mediocre jobs on wins, and there's been plenty of times I did flawless jobs on miscuts. So it's obviously not always what we do that ends up coming up the players, but um, I do like the fans getting to hear how much more goes into our job than it looks like. Um, and I kind of wish sometimes we were mic'd up because the last day I wrote down a bunch of stuff on my, my yardage book to talk about in between shots. Um, Weber's a big believer, and I am too, about off time between shots. Just You can't be thinking about golf all day out there or your mind will be exhausted right when you need it the most. And so, you know, we were talking about what does a guy's trip every year, which we've had a few weeks before. And so we were talking about different players and shots that were hit. I went through the NBA Finals. I purposely got antagonistic about uh, Houston and Golden State. He loves Golden State. He loves Steph Curry. He knows Steph a little bit. They play golf together. So I told him why Chris Paul was going to get in Steph's grill. And, you know, that lasted a couple of holes. And by the time we got to the 16 tee, um, we had quite a big wait there. We had a wait on 11 after making bogey, and we had a big wait on 16. And I just pulled out the yardage book with a couple of my little highlights and just uh, started, you know, creating combo. Um, and made sure that he didn't have any time um, uh, to, to think about anything else. And, you know, I think those little things are vital. And when you know a guy as well as I know Weber, um, I got all the little um, all the little dirt on him. Um, and I know the good spots, too, so I know where to go when I need to go to it. And I hold on to him. I don't use him week in and week out. Uh, if he's a little grumpy, sometimes I'll let him go if we're in 30th or 40th place. But when we're in that position, I'm definitely going to bring out the big guns and try to get him uh, – 
just distracted for the moment on what was going on. First, first of all, Webb is rooting against Chris Paul, his Wake Forest uh, guy. That's amazing. And second of all, you have 20 career wins. I wanted to ask you about that picture you shared earlier in the year with the sharing the hotel room with Webb. So, yeah, both those things I'm, I'm amazed about right now. <laughs> yes. Let's start with Chris Paul. Uh, Weber wants Chris to score 50 a game, okay. have 15 assists, and 10 rebounds. Uh-huh. He just wants to see Golden State win because we've got a little side cash on it. Gotcha, gotcha, uh, okay. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think if he would have thought differently about who was going to win the series, it would be different. Uh, he definitely wants Chris to succeed. He just, for this year, he he, he likes my money a lot, so uh, <laughs> he likes it in my pocket. So um, he, he, he wants that aspect of it a little bit better. Yeah, uh, I know the picture you're talking about. It's still one of my favorite moments. So uh, this is the first full year where Webb's family's not traveling. His son James is in school now, and his oldest daughter is about to start school um, in August. So they're not traveling much. Uh, They used to travel. If we worked 26 weeks, they would go to 22 of them, where I think this year they'll go to five or six. So, you know, a pretty big change for him. And Weber and I, we get along incredibly well. It's – we don't talk a lot about golf after the rounds. Um, he likes his own quiet time at coffee shops. I don't. And so um, I'm more of a, a homebody. I like sitting in the hotel room, watching movies, or, or watching the golf coverage that day. He doesn't. And so he'll go do his own thing. I'll do my own. We'll meet for dinner, um, laugh a little bit, and have a good time. But the funny part was I stayed with him at uh, Honolulu this year. We were supposed to have two queen beds in a big room, and they made a mistake at uh at the hotel and so all they had was a king bed and you know weber called me when he told me he said paulie i know your back's not great all they have is this i don't know what to do <laughs> he was like they have a chance for two beds but it's going to be more expensive it's on the other side of the hotel say like, weber you're paying this week buddy i'll sleep on a couch i don't care <laughs> like you're saving me you whatever 1500 bucks this week i'll sleep wherever so I slept there one night, and Wednesday night we came back from watching a movie, and we ate at CPK, and we got back. We walked in the room, and Weber starts laughing hysterically, like a true laugh. I'm like, buddy, what are you laughing at? He's like, Paul, sit for a second and look at my bed and look at yours. (laughs) And on his bed was this nice plush robe with, like, his initials on it. He had chocolates on both his pillows. They had been fluffed up and everything else. And then on my – he had a nice duvet. And then on mine, there was, like, a sheet. That was it, and one pillow, and that was it. And so he's like, is this not the perfect microcosm of a player in a caddy relationship or what? Like, and look how big and luxurious my ego's ears are short, it's small, and it's over in like a little corner of the room. And so I was like, buddy, do you mind if I tweet this out? I think people will love it. He goes, absolutely. So I tweeted it out, then he retweeted it, and I think I got over 100,000 impressions. Wow, more responses, and you know, some of my caddy brethren, uh, um, Teddy Scott, there was a little like area that you sit to put your shoes on. There were slippers underneath. I didn't even see that. And so many of the caddies said, "Is this where you're sleeping?" <laughs> and Weber said, "Yeah, but I left in the slippers. Aren't I a great boss?" And it just it turned into this really fun experience. And that was the same week of the video with me. I, I hit shots out of the balcony onto the tenth green at Wiley, um, where he threw the grass up and I hit shots out of the balcony. It was the same week. So wow. we had a lot of fun that week. Um, it was uh, it was a blast. What obviously we talked about your guys, you have such a great relationship. I just wonder what was the uh, celebration like on Sunday night? Well, you know, that's the thing. Um this is the US Open. I only saw him once after he won and that was when he went to media. I hugged him, I said, Buddy, I love you. I have a red eye. I wanna get home. I wanna go see the family. I'm out. So that was the US Open celebration, which was none and 
he ended up getting a free private flight from, um, I think it was Executive Jets, whoever he's with at the time, or Net Jets. And I would have flown home privately with him and Dowd, uh, but I was on a red eye going back. And the only person I saw that knew he'd won the U.S. Open was Jonathan Bird and gave a big old hug, and that was it. The whole way back, I kept trying to, like, point my phone at people so they would ask me questions, but nobody did. Everybody was sleeping. <laughs> so uh, this one was eerily similar. Um, I only saw him once, um, and I was doing interviews. He was doing interviews. And that was uh, he was doing Sports Center Live, and I did a little uh, video bomb. I jumped in. It was a tour's idea, and just said, "I love you, Weber." Live on Sports Center. I saw that. It was um, great. Tweet, tweeted that out. Yeah, that yeah. You know, caddies don't get on ESPN much, so we have to improvise. But <laughs> um, I gave him, again a quick hug and dialed, and away we went. I didn't really get to see him. He was on the way to the airport at like ten o'clock at night. He had been through everything, and mm. um, he texted me, and I had been home. I had a bunch of friends here waiting. We had sushi. My what I had that night, I had a. Uh, I said I had two glasses of wine, but the bottle was gone. So I don't know how full those glasses of wine <laughs> were or not. But I went for a, uh, I went for two full glasses of wine. Let's leave it at that. I had a sushi. Um, I had a bag of chips and guac, and I had two pints of ice cream. Uh, I had gained wow. 4.8 pounds. I weighed my, I'd lost five pounds during the week. And according to the scale, I gained 4.8 that night. And I hope a lot of that was water weight. I don't really know what happened, but uh, That's great. I, uh, I did pretty good. I only slept about an hour and a half watching a lot of the coverage and stuff. So uh, our celebration was separate, but, you know, at the same time, we, we were having a good time. That's a, actually a good point. I know we, we want to let you go, but you mentioned uh, how much weight you lost during the week. And I know that um, your foundation, you're raising money right now for – Basically, uh, every step you take, it's a mile in my shoes is the name of your yeah. your effort that's raising money for the Jacksonville area and children with special needs. You want to just talk really quickly about, about that and how important it is to you? Yes, thank you so much for asking about the foundation. It's a huge uh, piece of our heart and our desire to continue to get back. It was founded in 2009. Me and my wife founded it. My wife runs Foundations for a Living. She's fortunate enough to run Dustin Johnson's and uh, Jason Days and Mark Leishman. She's out of Hunter Mayhem's right now, and she does a great job running ours. And we've got about eight different programs and about 20 different events we do through the year right now. And one of our favorites is called the All Star Kids Clinic, which uh, we did a clinic with Jordan Spieth on Wednesday here. We've done it every year. It's the ninth one we've done throughout the country. And we do 25 kids with special needs. We get one-on-one tutoring with PGA Tour players and coaches. Um, and caddies as well. And it's just one of our favorite events. Um, and in kind and donations, we're going to go over a million dollars this year. And, you know, for such a small foundation, so many volunteers and people have gotten behind what we're doing. And it's a beautiful thing to see. And that Wednesday afternoon, Jordan, whose best friend is a sister who also has special needs, and my son, Isaiah, is four and a half with Down syndrome. Man, it's just, uh, we started off trying to give back. And all that happens is these kids end up giving back to us. And we also have, like you said, the uh, Mile in My Shoes program where people just donate anywhere from a penny to a dollar a mile for how many miles I walk throughout the year. And just through that, um, I think we figured out that if we get 150 people to do uh, five cents a mile, it equals up to enough to take care of. We do a program where we um, uh, do Christmas for 60 kids and their families. Wow that are homeless throughout the community. And it's my favorite event because we go buy their presents, we wrap their presents, and we get so many people together. We're drinking coffee. It's usually a little cold, and uh, we're just all laughing and having a good time. And it's a great program. But that pays for that and our Buddy Basket program for kids with special needs in the local area. So um, if you want to check it out, it's SoriFamilyFoundation.org. It is our huge heart to continue to get back. And thanks to Weber, we got a little extra cash to do so, too, at the same time. That was a big week uh 
for us for sure. So um, what 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 a blessing it is, and uh, thank you guys for having me on. Let me talk about the foundation. Thank you guys. Tell I'm I'm pretty long winded. I love this game. I'm a little bit of geek about it, and uh, <laughs> it's just a, a pleasure to be in this position and uh, to have some success again. Well, the pleasure was ours. You you were great, Paul. You really great insight into the game, and and obviously uh, coming off a big win, it's exciting to to hear you uh, to talk about it. I wonder how many miles do you walk in a year, Paul? <laughs> I can't fully tell you that okay. because that's cheating. Because uh, people people win some big prizes. Okay. Uh, last year, uh, the basket for the guy that got the, the most was worth about six grand. I had one of my winning bids for one of my tournaments. We had some tickets to go to some tournaments throughout the year. However, I can tell you that uh, I average it seems like somewhere between fifty and seventy miles a week. So I'll help everybody guess a little bit. Kind of figure out Weber's schedule. Guys are getting better each year he, uh, uh, to figure things out. The guesses are getting closer. So um, uh, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. This past week, I was looking at my numbers, and it was my business week of the year, miles-wise, because I sometimes need to get out on the course and do some extra work just to kind of get in a little quiet place. And I think I did almost 70 miles this week. So it was, it was a big week for us. Is it fair to say that you walk less when you're, the better your player plays? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. I, I make fun of Weber all the time. Hey, buddy, thanks for helping the foundation out. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, buddy, you're doing a great donation work today with the way you're driving the ball. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll always surprise him with it. He ends up laughing. He goes, yeah, 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 good one. Um, so um, I make fun of him. But then also when you're in contention, I'll, I'll do a little bit more work sometimes course-wise. You, know, you have late tee times and you're able to go out and do some work on the mm. course as well. So. What's your low round at, at TPC Sawgrass? Just quick, I wondered, so, did Webb yeah, beat you I, with that 63? Yes, he did. Uh, <laughs> I shot 65 a few times. Wow. Um, I, I, I broke 30 on the front once and shot 30 on the back, like different rounds, obviously. But uh, I've had some success out there back when I was still playing on tour, even though it was very unsuccessful. And, uh, I used to play there two to 300 rounds a year. Um, I love the golf course, always have, and I think it's a great place to work on your game. So that's the main. I've been around the place about 700 times, and uh, he beat me in one round in competition with tough pins and firm greens. So um, <laughs> it didn't take him long to take me down. <laughs> awesome. Well, listen, Paul DeSorey, great stuff. We're really glad you uh, took some time out to join us. Thanks, thanks, Boy, Paul. Thanks for having me on. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you, and uh, – Hopefully we'll win another big one soon, and we'll get to do it again. Sounds good. Thanks, Paul. Good luck the rest of the season. All right, guys. Thank you. Take care. Thanks again to Paul for joining us. That was uh, really great to hear his insight into the win, how special it was for for both him and and Webb, obviously, with Paul having all those local ties there. And uh, we move on this week to the AT&T Byron Nelson. That's next on the PGA Tour schedule. Webb Simpson will not be there. In fact, just about every great player will not (laughs) be there, unfortunately. You know, at the Players' Championship, it gets talked about over and over again, how it's the best field. And, you know, it really is on paper. You had all top 50 of the top 50. Of course, Paul Casey hurt himself and pulled out. But you had them all there. This week at the Byron Nelson, only five of the top 50 players. That's disappointing, especially since... They are unveiling a new course this week, Trinity Forest, a core Crenshaw design, which has gotten a lot of buzz and yeah. hype from, you know, these architect gurus slash snobs. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it does look, lot, it look right? it looks amazing. Yeah, actually. it does. It very much, you know what it looks like? Um, it kind of looks like old McDonald uh, abandoned, just right. sort of really barren landscape and kind of everything's um, 
a lot of humps and bumps and very hitting shots in the green. You're trying to trying to rub it in my face. You've been there. Yeah, oh, oh, you I've been there. By the way, in there, <laughs> quite, Sam? quite glorious. How was it? Um, it, was, it was it was lovely. <laughs> but I mean, anyway, it is. I think I think Byron Nelson is very much a a victim of the schedule. It'd actually be interesting yeah. to see what happens next year because. Uh, you know, with the PGA moving to May and mm-hmm. players moving to March, where where it will fall, you know, obviously when it comes to Byron Nelson, the 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 great um, the great blow to it was when the great man himself died. Uh, players no longer felt obligated to go there and honor him, and right. so. I do think this golf course might be the opportunity to get guys excited about it again. So we'll see. It looks really cool. I'm excited to watch myself. But you're right, not a great field. Yeah, uh, very disappointing field. But uh, we also still want to make our picks. And um, actually, before we make our picks, huge announcement. Uh, the Supreme Court struck down a federal law that prohibited uh, gambling. So this is big news. I mean, this, this doesn't mean like that today it's legal for us to go and gamble. We, we're all in New York right now. Healy lives in Connecticut. But our state should maybe soon be following you know, following what uh, uh, Nevada has done, obviously, for so many years. And, you know, it always struck me as odd as you had to go to one state to, to bet on sports. I right. Was well, ridiculous. I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about the ins and outs of, of what was holding it back, but I think everyone was worried that these sports would be compromised yeah. by, by yeah. gambling. But I guess it's so ubiquitous anyway, you know, Exa- offline and exactly. all these different mm-hmm. uh, ways you can bet. So, you know, you're like, why not, uh, why not, you know, Join the party. Join the party, and and, yeah. and uh, take advantage of interest because, I mean, let's be honest, it's a fun way to to watch it golf is. or any sport when you have a little action going. So especially this week when the field is so exactly. poor, yeah. right. you might you know, um, right. no, but it's funny because in our cafeteria, I finally bumped into the man himself, Jeffrey Tubin. And for just a second, I was grabbing a cookie, and he was like, oh, you're getting a cookie? I was like, yeah, and I didn't even know who it was. And then he jumped in and grabbed a cookie. I don't think he was you supposed to take one. No, but he, he kind of snuck in and took a cookie. And I choked because I really wanted to get his take on mm-hmm. it. He's the perfect guy to ask about this. Yeah. Oh, you didn't? I didn't. Well, I choked. It's a, a disappointing he, story. He, hus- he grabbed the cookie. He, he ran off. I know. I, I totally blew it. That's but I, I think it's a pretty popular decision. And, <laughs> it is um, within the office, that's for sure. Right. That was a beautiful day. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, I worry for some of our coworkers. Many, uh, many, losing, yes. Losing everything. Right. Especially when um, we're going to check expense accounts. The destitute West. Much <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, there's going to be some this, uh, extra uh, expenses. Hera's sports book. <laughs> um, all right, well, we'll make our picks now. They're still not technically legal, but we still, we always make them anyway. That just shows you how commonplace this stuff is. Keely, I'll let you go first. Who are kind of okay. your, your stud player and maybe uh, someone who's a uh, sleeper value pick. All right, my stud this week, Jimmy Walker. Ooh. Wow. Yeah. Good week last week. Yeah. Huge low, week. Low key, amazing week. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Um T2 at the players last week and I'm just I got to say his swing was looking good. Mm-hmm. Like watching him I was like, "All right, he is in the zone. He's ready to win." And now he's 20 to 1 back home in Texas. Mm-hmm. I love it. I like um it. my sleeper is Russell Knox. Um, 60 to one. He has a couple top tens this year. And I like that it's a new course for him. I like that it's Trinity and I like that it's Linksy because he's from Scotland. So, you know, he can play Links. Obviously this is, he's going to win. Yeah. This is just like so blatant. I'm going to win. I thought you were talking about uh, Stephen Bowditch before. Any I idea? was. Yeah. I do love Bowditch. If I could have a third pick, it would go to Bowditch's one thousand to one. <laughs> wow! I mean, he won this event three years ago, thousand uh, to one. How can you not throw like a couple bucks down on that? That's amazing. Thousand and to one. Nice guy. Nice. 
Yeah. Low-key, nice guy. Yes, and another guy who struggled but has handled everything very with, well. With a great sense of humor. A great sense of humor. One of the best followers on Twitter, but not one of the best players right now. But all right. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Sam, your picks. Uh, I am going to follow in Keeley's uh, footsteps by picking someone who I think might play well on a link style golf course. I'm going to go with someone we just talked about, which was Adam Scott, who's mm, a 22 to one. Yeah, coming off a good week. I mean, it just seems like you can't go on any uh, past form, obviously, because it's a brand new golf course. But I do feel yeah. like uh, a golf course like this would reward a really good ball striker, and the putting is at least respectable enough where he can contend. So I'm going to go with that. And then just to be uh, to continue the trend. Uh, like you said, this is going to be a uh, a golf course that's going to reward a golf course snob. Okay. There's, no greater, <laughs> there's no greater golf course snob than Jeff Ogilvy. Oh, yes. yes. right. So, so I actually, it. I saw Zach Blair in the field. And that's yep. a comment, by the way. Let me be clear. That's yes, definitely yes, a comment. Yes. But there's guys who, guys who appreciate yes. great golf course architecture. Right. And those guys are kind of the two. Ogilvy, Zach Blair. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm going to go with Jeff Ogilvy. I don't even know what his odds are, but I like him. So. Yeah. No, I, right. that, that's solid. That's funny. Adam Scott was my pick as well. Uh Exciting to see him play a little better. Incredible to think it has been nearly a year since he even had a top 10. Of course, he T11 at the players is pretty close, right. but technically not a top 10 since the uh, FedEx St. Jude last year. Um, I like I like him. I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of unfamiliarity with the greens, so I don't think putting will be as big of a, an aspect. But on the same token, for my sleeper pick um, – I don't know how much of a sleeper he really is, but he's 40 to 1 odds. He's Bo Hostler. Yeah. He's a guy who, it seems like every other day, he's posting a video from Trinity yeah. Forest. Right. That's not a sleeper. Pick. Practicing <laughs> there. Uh, but he's 40 to 1. So he's that's, not, you know, he's not, I'm saying value. he should be 20 to 1. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, he, he should have already won this year. Ian Poulter just snagged that victory from him uh, yeah. in Houston. Um, he He's, you know, kind of a local guy now. He's moved moved to Texas. Um, he's a member of Trinity Forest. He loves this course. Again, he's beating balls there every day. I think he will have an ad- advantage. Of course, none of us mentioned another guy who will have a huge advantage. That's Jordan Spieth. Right. Spieth yeah. It's too obvious to pick Jordan Spieth. Right, we can't pick him. He's four and a half to one odds, which is crazy <laughs> low odds for these days at a, at a tour event. But again, it's only the five of yeah. the top 50. Right. And, um, you know, there was this story yesterday. He made his debut here when he was 16. And that letter circulated. Right. You guys saw that? I yeah. did. It was very it's impressive. Little, Great grammar. A little, little braggy, though, right? I mean, that's what you I mean, got to do. You got to How else are you getting short. into this I mean, event? It was like, I'm the number one this, number yeah. one that. I mean, you know, we get it. You're yeah. good. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That, that, that was impressive. 16 years old. He got in, and he finished T16. Right. He was T7 I through 54 holes. That was amazing. Unreal. That was when uh, Mr. Nelson... Uh, was still alive, I think. I believe so. Um, I, think, I think they had a... No. Or maybe it was... Maybe it was, go to the maybe it was Peggy. Later. Maybe it was just Peggy. Well, Peggy's still around. Yeah, I know, but he, I remember them having a nice interaction. Mm, maybe it wasn't Mr. Nelson. Mm. Um, yeah. Anyway, it's not at that course anymore. That was... Uh, I the know, that's Cantera, why... Las Colinas. Las Colinas. La Cantera's t- uh, Valero, Nobody right? liked that course. Yeah, so you're... You're way off. <laughs> yeah, Byron Nelson died in 2006. We're not making light of it, but okay, he did okay. die. So that was George four Speed years. Was six that years was old, 2010. Right? Speeds was 2010. Right. So I missed him by four years. All right. right. He didn't shake hands with Mr. <laughs> Nelson. It was, a, it was a really cool image I had in my head. Like right. the young. People, everyone's looking the young for the photos. Star of him, right. from like, you know, meeting the old master. Okay, that never happened. Um, very but we got Las Colinas out. Um, 
you know, that's also the course, Las Colinas. Get get rid of it. That's where Tiger's uh, the cut streak. LPGA got rid of Tiger's it, Tiger's cut streak ended. Right. Ooh. The long cut streak, the record. So, terrible course. We're, we're moving on to Trinity Moving on. Force. I'm excited for Trinity Force. Yeah. All the feedback I've seen has been really positive, mm-hmm. too. It's kind of like Bandon, which I, did I tell you I've been to Bandon? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So. Abandon, if you're listening, do not let Sam back. We can't handle it. Um, All right, and I wanted to end with kind of a nugget, our our big nugget of the week that will just amaze all your friends when you tell them. T.J. Vogel, who your friends won't even know who that guy is. In fact, I I had to look him up. Uh, T.J. Vogel has Monday qualified for a fifth time this year. He's playing in the Byron Nelson. For those of you who don't know, it's basically like you play in a tournament on a Monday, one round, and you have to finish in the top four, basically. And I looked it up. The average last year, you, you had to shoot a 65.7. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's insane. There was, a, there was so one last year where five guys shot 64 and didn't qualify for the Shell Houston Open. So this is, I mean, for him to do this five times, it's one off the record, which is held by Patrick Reed. Wow. So Whoa. that just shows you the kind of golf this guy's playing. He does have a T16 at the Valspar in one of those uh, uh, four appearances so far. Guys, I mean, why, a guy like this who can make – that's a lot of pressure. I, I was just going to say, you know, I, I can't think of a more exhausting way of life yeah. than just Monday Showing qualifying. Showing up, right. oh. traveling somewhere, one round. And just, yeah, like you're playing like your ass is on the line because right. it is right. every single time. Like I would be completely fried right. after that one round. Right. And, and now you have to go play hopefully four rounds. Right. And every whole – Every like par five, you don't birdie. You're like, yeah, I'm a little. I don't have basically. a chance because yeah. some asshole shooting 62 right now. Exactly, um, it's pretty nuts. And the other great Monday qualifier of our generation is Austin Cook. He's now a PJ Tour winner. Yeah. So yeah. this bodes well for this guy, though. I mean, it, it is it's a tough life, like Keely mentioned, but he's you know he's he's learning. He's learning out there. He's learning. <laughs> <Is> he? <laughs> um, guys, any final thoughts on on the week? What we've saw? What we're gonna see? Anything? We never we got through the whole podcast. We never talked about Phil's shirt. Oh my oh, god, yeah. amazing! I know. I mean, so, enough has been talked about it, that's but true. the story but that rocked the golf world—it really did. It was—it's amazing. That was one of those stories that I'm just like, I don't understand why this is like taking the traction that that it is. But here we are. We're going to talk about Phil's shirt every day. Phil, we can do another twenty minutes. You, we, we easily <laughs> do. It's a special good. special uh, edition podcast. Yeah. Phil just has a knack for doing things though that just yeah. draw attention. Yeah. But I, I, you know, look, even that that company tweeted at me. They were upset. I I said he looked ridiculous. <laughs> he did look ridiculous. I'm sorry. And it was ninety degrees. So you know. Yeah. And Oof. and Marty Hackle. Um, our, our former style guy, who's the best golf style guy out there, even he Instagrammed and said they have a lot of work to do. Which, if you know Marty, that's the nastiest, yeah. meanest mm-hmm. thing he's ever said. So, back to the drawing board, guys. Um, and and, it was, and you it know, was a tough look. Phil missed the cut too. So, I, it might not have. I'm not blaming the shirt, but right. I'm not saying right. that the shirt helped. I hope he's getting paid well. Yeah. I'm sure he. I'm sure he is. <laughs> um, all right, and oh, and we also one more thing we didn't mention: Justin Thomas, number one. 21st player to get to the number one ranking since 1986 when the official World Golf Ranking became an official thing. And uh, the fifth youngest at 25. And actually, Luke Curtinine, our colleague, did a really cool little story uh, kind of factoring in points per start. So it was kind of like he is the player who plays the best the most often. So there's guys who – there are guys who who obviously get a lot of points by just playing a lot, not necessarily placing that high. And then there are guys who place high but don't necessarily play a lot. Well, 
Thomas is kind of at the the top of both axis. Mm-hmm. Multiple mm-hmm. axis. Axi. X X I. X I. Well, anyway, he's he's that's, doing great. That's, that's why he's the number one player. He's doing in the world. great, and right. I mean, we can expect to, for him to stay there probably for a bit, or no? I don't think so. I think it's too competitive too up competitive. there. Too competitive. I agree. Yeah, I, it would be interesting. This might be this might be the the most um, volatile, volatile period. Yeah, just, there's so many guys, and it's not really a reflection on Thomas, who's going to probably continue down this road. But it's oh, just totally. so many guys who are going to contend. Basically, I bet you know someone at the U.S. Open is going to win, and that's going to probably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. Right. No, and, and he did take over for Dustin Johnson, who had spent 64 weeks there, which is actually the fifth longest streak. So a sneaky good historic run there by right. DJ. He yeah. was kind of hanging on at the end. But, but yeah, I don't, I don't think Justin will stay there for 64 weeks. Just, again, not any fault of his own. Just It's just too tough these days. No, I totally agree. All right. Well, anyway, guys, thanks for, for hanging. It was fun. Thank you to Paul Tesori for joining us. Uh, that was a great chat as well. And Thanks to everyone out there for listening. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already. And check back next week to see who our guest is. 